What's your name? Tim Haggerty. When you're not staying at home during a global pandemic, what do you do for a living? Broadcaster for the El Paso Chihuahuas. What is the most productive thing outside of this podcast that you have done while staying safe at home during this global pandemic? We actually have been undergoing a pretty good workload uh, producing a Chihuahuas TV show online. Coming up on this edition of Life Around the Seams, Tim Haggerty makes me feel guilty that I'm not producing a daily show about the Albuquerque isotopes. But we catch up with our good friend and our fellow baseball nerd. We do this once a year. We each find five unique stories, and we basically try to impress each other and our audience with these strange but true tales from baseball's very colorful past. Round three with Tim Haggerty is next. This is Life Around the Seams. Former Major League pitcher Jim Bouton once wrote, You spend a good piece of your life gripping a baseball, and in the end, it turns out it was the other way around all the time. Welcome to Life Around the Scenes. A podcast about baseball people who have interesting stories from between the lines, and sometimes even more interesting stories outside the lines. Here's your host, Josh Sushan. Hags, you are the first three-time guest of the Life Around the Seams podcast. Do you feel honored or what? Wow, I didn't know that. I know you've had Cody Decker on twice, a former Padre, former Isotope and Chihuahua, so I've eclipsed him. Yeah, so this is round three with Haggerty, and while every single one of these stories is not going to specifically deal with the coronavirus and the fact that we are not playing baseball games right now and we don't know when we are going to be playing games, there's a little bit of a theme in some cases, it's an extreme theme. Uh, it takes a while to get there. But most of these stories are going to have something to do with being at home or baseball not being played. And so, Tim, you're the guest. You can lead things off with your first strange but true tale. Well, where I went with that is there's a lot of chatter, a lot of articles. When Major League Baseball returns, what will the playoff format look like? And in 1892... The California League and the Northwest League had what is believed to be the first ever interleague postseason championship series. They were so excited about this. It was a 19-game series, and it took place in January. <laughs> so they crowned the 1892 champion in January 1893. I that thought about what like it football. would be like to, uh, yeah, that's true, the playoffs in the following year. We're so used to a five-game series or a seven-game series. I mean, what would it be like to call a decisive game 19? Because <laughs> that's what happened. San Jose beat Portland 10-9. And I thought about this because the super agent Scott Boris has this theory that I've seen in the articles that he's developed a pretty good-sized Major League Baseball schedule that would conclude around Christmas time. And... Why not go into January? I mean, what I liked about this story, I know it's crazy, 
but I like the flexibility that so many of us will be craving postseason baseball that maybe it's okay that the Major League playoffs go into the winter. You ever wonder why they picked 19 games and not 21? I mean, 21, it's been lucky 21 for a long time, right? Like, why would they say, nah, 17 is not enough. But 19, <laughs> 21, that would just be crazy. Then we'd get into February. 19 is the sweet spot for this playoff series. <laughs> I don't know. All 19 games took place in San Jose for weather. So San Jose got that home field advantage, and they won the series 10 games to 9. Would the World Series be better or worse if it was 19 games? I kind of like seven, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wow. I mean, sometimes our, in, in our league, like, you know, you might play the same team back-to-back -back home and road. I think there was one time that we played Reno back-to-back -back series, and there had been a rainout, so it was actually a nine-game series. And I remember just thinking, what in the world am I going to say here in game eight of this <laughs> nine-game series? But a 19-game series for the championship. What were the two leagues again? <laughs> California League and Pacific Northwest League. San were Jose these, and Portland. Were these both known as uh, like comparable? Would that be – I mean, I realized that, that how minor league systems were classified back then is totally different than nowadays. But was that kind of like AAA versus AAA? Or would that be sort of like single A versus short season A or what? Yeah, as you mentioned, the classifications were so different and they've evolved over time, but my understanding is they were similar. I could double-check baseball reference. They do such a great job when you look at the archived minor leagues of telling you the classification. In some cases, they write none when there wasn't one, and oftentimes that was the case in the 19th century. Um, so what do you, are, are you wondering, it, was this an upset when San Jose took out Portland? <laughs> was it a... Uh, were they playing yeah, out of their league? I, I want to know what the uh, what the odds makers thought and whether there was known <laughs> fixers that wanted to make sure that it went all 19 games. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, and then I think about the individual player stats. We're so used to in the World Series hearing something like Bregman is 12 for 28 in the World Series. But, you know, these guys, let's see, they might have gotten 100 at bats. Right. <laughs> <laughs> all right. I like it. I like it a lot. And also because I got slightly nervous because when you said that you were looking back into the past, I thought that you were going to use um, 1981, which is something that I've been researching quite a bit because, as most people know, the season was interrupted by a strike that year. And, um, and as baseball tries to figure out how they will begin this season, there's been a lot of look back to 1981 and a unique playoff format then. So let me give you some details about the 1981 season, some of which most people are going to know, but there's a few other things that I've learned recently um, that I think were interesting. So the last game before the strike was Thursday, June 11th of 1981. The strike was settled on July 31st, and they gave the players basically nine days to get ready. The regular season resumed on Monday, August 10th. The day before was the All-Star Game, which obviously was not played because it was during the work stoppage. That's usually the second Tuesday in July. And in this case, the All-Star Game was played on Sunday, August 9th in Cleveland. There was over 70,000 fans who were there. I actually rewatched the 1981 All-Star Game hags the other day because, well, why not? And uh, some of the things that were really interesting about that were... Okay, so it's played in Cleveland. That's an American League city. And there was a lot of question about, well, will the players be cheered or will the players be booed? Well, all of the National League players were booed. And so 
that was one indication. But again, it's an American League city, and so maybe they're just cheering for their players. And indeed, the American League players, by and large, were cheered, except for all the Yankees. Reggie Jackson was booed, <laughs> as he always was. Um, and there was heartfelt standing ovation for the Cleveland Indians manager and for Len Barker. Um, the manager for the American League did not select Len Barker to start that game. And so the manager was booed because they thought that, that, uh, that Len Barker should have been the starting pitcher in that one. Um, I learned a few other things during the broadcast. By the way, it was Tony Kubek doing the analysis and Joe Garagiola did play-by-play, which I had not remembered that Joe G did play-by-play. I only remembered him doing uh, analyst with Vin Scully. Um, but anyways, a couple of things that stood out to me. Number one, Tim Raines was on pace to break the single-season stolen base record. Again, this is before Ricky Henderson had broke the record in 1982. This was 1981. The record was 118 by Lou Brock. And at the time of the strike, Tim Raines had stolen 50 bases. He had only been thrown out six times. He was on pace for 147 stolen bases. And because the season was had so many games that were wiped out, he had no chance of breaking the record. Raines ended up finishing the season with 71 stolen bases. And based on the number of games that his team played, that was a pace of 107. And so Raines tapered off. But you also feel like if he knew that he had a chance to break the record, maybe he would have run a little bit more or maybe right after the strike, he was worried about playing a hamstring or a, or a quad or something. And so maybe he didn't steal quite as many bases. You know, I vividly recall Ricky Henderson breaking the record in 1982, but I had totally forgotten that Tim Raines was on pace to not just break, but to absolutely shatter Lou Brock's record. Again, Lou Brock's record was 118 and Raines was on pace for 147. I didn't know that. Obviously, if we needed reminding, we all learned what an underrated player Reigns was when he reached the Hall of Fame a couple of years ago and there was these rewinds into his career. But it's interesting what you're saying about a strike and its effects on potential of records. Of course, Fred McGriff comes to mind. He is somebody that I would vote for for the Hall of Fame. He famously has, I think, 493 home runs and was a terrific power hitter in 1994. And of course, the assumption is if he had that extra month and a half in 1994, he would have reached 500 and perhaps is in the Hall of Fame. Um, that came up last year with Harold Baines when he was such a surprising choice to the Hall of Fame. And people would say, well, if it wasn't for those two strikes that Baines was a part of, he would have had 3,000 hits. So one wonders about the delayed Major League season this year. And you look ahead years down the line. I mean, does this cost a Hall of Fame nod to somebody winding down a great career like Joey Votto, where maybe the totals end up being a little bit less? Is this, you know, Jacob deGrom, who's at back-to-back Cy Young Awards. Is, is perhaps his career looked at a little bit different years from now if maybe he doesn't get a full season this year? So it's interesting. I I don't want to quote it, but I can paraphrase it that um, people would ask Tony Gwynn about that. He hit 394 in 1994, the strike shortened the season. And when people would say, Tony, you know, do you wish the strike never happened? That way you would have had a chance to hit 400 and enter the record books. And if I'm remembering correctly... The late, great Tony Gwynn, such a nice man. I know you and I have both met him and lucky to do so. Said he he felt he really wanted to make lives better for future players. He did not regret the strike, even what it cost him professionally. So I wonder what Reigns thinks about that season now. There was a few other things that were interesting. Speaking of records, there was a lot of discussion during that 1981 All-Star game about 
whether or not this was going to cost Pete Rose a chance of breaking Ty Cobb's all-time record. And I think it was Tony Kubek who said that Rose's agent actually looked into Rose going to Japan and playing games in Japan during the strike, which I thought was, was, uh, was really interesting. As it turned out, Rose, we know, he, he did break the record. It took him a little bit longer. Certainly that cost him a number of, of games and at-bats when he was still at his, uh, at his prime. But, um, you know, they did like a quick little like recorded interview where Pete said, you know, I still think I can do it. I want to do it. And that was um, that was very interesting. But the, the playoffs in 1981 was very controversial. Baseball went to a split format. Whoever, whatever the standings were when the strike began, those were the winners of the first half. And then when baseball resumed on August 10th of 1981, they reset the records to zero and zero, and it was a sprint, the final about seven weeks of the season, and whoever was in first place at the end of that second half was the second half champion. This is what happens in the minor leagues quite frequently, first half champions versus second half champions. And um, and so, and then those two first half and second half winners played in a division series. This was before the wild card. Some people called it like the mini series, but it was the division series. But it led to a lot of inequities both in the National League East and the National League West, the team that had the best overall record did not make the playoffs. The Cardinals were the best overall team in the National League East that year by two games, but they did not have the best record in the first half or the second half, so they did not go to the playoffs. And also the Cincinnati Reds in the National League West were the best team by four games, but they also did not make the playoffs because they did not win the first half or the second half. There was also a lot of controversy about the number of games that were played. Now, overall, the strike canceled 713 games in 1981. That was roughly 38% of the season. There were some teams that played as few as 103 games, the Royals, the Indians, the Pirates, and the Reds. And the San Francisco Giants played more games than anybody else. They played 111. So it's interesting that, that one team would play eight more than another when you added up the first and the second half. You think about sometimes they're scheduled double headers in the second half, or maybe they're scheduled in the first half, or maybe a game was uh, was postponed and they were going to make it up later in the season, or just the um, you know the, the various ways in which teams have off days that are scattered throughout the season, and that was very controversial because of like the whole half games, and so we'll get to a little bit later what baseball did in order to try to rectify that in the future, in case that becomes an issue. Um, this year. Another weird example is that the Kansas City Royals were under 500 for the entire season, um, but yet they won the second half. And so they ended up um, going to the playoffs. They were 50 and 53. They had the fourth best record overall in the American League West, but they won the second half just barely. Uh, the A's that year were juggernaut. The A's started the season with 11 straight wins. They were 17 and one. They were 20 and three. And how about this, Hags? The A's played 109 games that year, and their starting pitcher went the distance, a complete game in 60 of those 109 games. <laughs> and that's not that long ago. I mean, 1981, you're not talking about 1920. Right. Uh, just a couple of other quick notes about 1981. I was really curious. The reason why I actually watched the 81 All-Star game to begin with was I was just curious what the discussion was going to be about how teams were getting their pitching staffs back in order. And again, because some guys stayed in shape a lot, some guys stayed in shape a little bit. How were they going to get starting pitchers built back up when there was only nine days from the time that the work stoppage ended until the time that the season began? So most teams did something similar to what the Chicago White Sox did. 
In the first game back, the White Sox used three different starting pitchers for three innings. Rich Dotson, first three, Dennis Slamp, the middle three, Lamar Hoyt. And so they wanted to bring back their starting pitchers slowly, and they split the game into thirds, basically. In that first game after the work stoppage, three games went into extra innings. There was a 12-inning game, and there was two different 13-inning games. So imagine how that was um, on your staff after a long layoff. And then there's Burt Blylevin, somewhat recent Hall of Famer. First game after the break, haven't played since June something. He goes nine innings. <laughs> he went nine <laughs> innings. And then, three day, and then he goes on three days rest, and he went seven innings. And then three days after that, he went six and two-third innings. And then three days after that, he went seven innings again. So Burt Blylevin did not need a whole lot of warm-up in order to uh, – in order to go deep into games right after this lengthy strike. Well, and then we forward to 2020 with the coronavirus situation. They're talking about adding additional players to major league rosters for that exact reason to slow down from the innings on your pitching staff. So really just demonstrates how much times have changed. As far as the split season part, I've worked in leagues in the minor leagues where they had that. I always found it hard to explain to fans and I don't like the anomalies that can happen that you just described. I don't like the idea that somebody could win more games than anyone else in their league and yet not make the playoffs. Uh, and there have been reverse examples of that. Around a decade ago in the Texas League, AA Arkansas actually won the league championship based on one strong half, but their other half was so bad that they had a sub-500 record and yet won a championship ring. So what I love about baseball is the volume of games and how oftentimes you play all these games, all these innings, and then it can come down to just a game or two at the end. And with a split season, I think you'll lose a little bit of that. Yeah, in the case of the minor leagues, you probably know this better than me, but I think the idea is that rosters change so much, and the team that you have in July and August is totally different than the team that you have in April and May, whether it's because your roster got decimated by call-ups, you're not quite as good as you were early in the season, or whether your team didn't start very strong, but you had a number of players that got moved up from lower levels up to your level. And so I think that's why minor league baseball does it that way. Or maybe it's just a more convenient way to do playoffs. If you're not playing against another league, this way it's just the first half champion plays against the second half champion or something like that. In your research, I've always wondered this. Why didn't Major League Baseball in 1981 just pick up the standings where they were and have it be a typical most wins gets you to the playoffs? Do you know the origin of that split season? Yeah. So I don't know all of the details about it, but I'm, but I'm fairly certain that the primary reason was that they wanted to create a pennant race and they knew that there was a lot of fan resentment because of the strike. And they felt like this would give every team an opportunity to go to the playoffs. And therefore that would create incentive for fans to come out to the game and cheer for their team. There was already enough incentive to not come out and watch games that this, yeah. uh, this gave you an opportunity to, to just try and get more people to come to the ballpark. That makes sense when you phrase it that way, because I'm sure there was fan anger, as I experienced as a kid in 1994. So, yeah. Well, speaking of 1994, that's going to lead to my second story. I'm going to double up and go back to back, and that is about the work stoppage that began in August of 1994, wiped out the entire World Series, and then it continued on the following year into spring training. Most people probably remember that the owners were going to use replacement players. It was mostly a joke, um, but yeah, they had a spring training with replacement players. They were on the verge of actually starting the regular season with replacement players. The labor stoppage finally ended on April 2nd. It was uh, within, I think, a day or two before the start of opening day. 
And then um, the real players went to spring training. It was an abbreviated spring training of three weeks. And then the season began on April 25th. Now, one of the things that Major League Baseball learned from 1981 was that every team had to play the same number of games. And so they started the season on April 25th, but in order to make sure that everybody played the same number of games, they had to add a few games to the schedule. They had to add a few double headers, and each team ended up playing 144 games instead of the usual 162. Now, attendance actually suffered more in 1995 after that work stoppage than it did in 1981. Attendance was down by about 20% throughout baseball in 1995. And here's something that I actually forgot until doing some research. The owner of the Orioles then, as now, was Peter Angelos. Peter Angelos was in about his second year as the owner of the Orioles, and he refused to use replacement players. He was not going to make a mockery of baseball with replacement players. Now, he was hailed as a, as a, as a, uh, as a hero in a very blue-collar town of Baltimore for not asking players to cross the picket lines. His fellow owners were not so happy, some thought that he should be fined up to $250,000 per game. There was others who thought about forcing him to sell the team because he did not go along with all the other owners. What we may not ever know is whether Peter Angelos just firmly believed that there should not be replacement players or whether his stance had to do with Cal Ripken. Cal Ripken was less than one year away from breaking Lou Gehrig's all-time record for consecutive games. If replacement players had been used, then Cal Ripken Jr.'s streak would have come to an end. He would have never broken the record. Now, there's some discrepancy on if the Orioles did not field the team, would that just be considered a forfeit? And if it's a forfeit, would that mean that Ripken's streak would continue or would Ripken's streak not continue if there was a forfeited game? But as it turned out, um, thankfully, labor peace was reached. The replacement players never got into any games. Ripken played every game throughout 1995, as he had every game from May 30th of 1982 on, and it became a seminal moment in restoring public confidence in the game. And, and Cal Ripken was, was what absolutely what baseball needed, the fact that he just continued to play every day. But it is, um, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't want it to be lost to history that his streak nearly ended because of the strike in 1994 through 95. I had read that Peter Angelos and the companies that he owned had used organized labor and he respected that and was perhaps more sympathetic to unions than some other owners is what I had read at the time. And when you mentioned opening day 1995, that was my TV debut. I uh, went to opening day. It was a day game at Fenway Park, a Red Sox twins game. And Channel 5 in Boston was there interviewing fans about if they had hard feelings that the strike had taken place. And I was, uh, let's see, in seventh grade. And I remember not really understanding what the phrase hard feelings meant. And I remember on camera trying to <laughs> answer this nice woman's question. But, you know, I was just, what, what are you in seventh grade? Like 12 or 13? Um, but anyway, yeah, I was on the local news uh, on opening day in 1995 as a kid. But I actually was a, a survivor of that strike. I've heard studies that say like ages 10, 11, 12 are when you're most passionate about baseball. And August of 1994, I mean, I was a middle school kid obsessed with baseball, and that did really sting that there was no World Series that year. But I came back. 
So I take it your answer to the nice reporter from Channel 5 in Boston was that you did not have any hard feelings, even though you didn't know what hard feelings were? Exactly. So looking back, if we find that tape, I probably didn't fully express that I did have some hard feelings as a kid the summer before, but I was probably just thrilled to be at opening day at Fenway Park. I remember Ken Ryan getting the save. It's a right-handed reliever that had really unusual delivery. It's funny what names pop into your head when you think back to old games. Yeah, I'll have to call it WCVB, Needham, Massachusetts. Pull up their show tape from that day. See if they spelled my name right. In all 5,045 trips to the disabled list during Cal Ripken Jr.'s streak made by other players, and not only did he have that streak of games, but he also had a streak of consecutive innings. From June of 82 until September of 87, Cal Ripken Jr. played every single inning of every single game. It was 8,264 consecutive innings. And there was a, an article that I found by uh, Trent McCotter of Sabre, impeccable research. Ripken's innings streak is more than 3,000 higher than the next closest streak of playing every inning. You know what I loved about when he broke that record that following September, that uh, home game against the Angels? It was like there were TV news stories and newspaper articles coming out all across the country about bus drivers, convenience store workers, just construction workers. You go down the list. It was like every city had this employee that also never missed a day of work. And they yeah. became featured in their cities. It was like what was cool about the Ripken streak is that it brought out tough, strong people and uh, gave them that tip of the cap that they deserved. Yeah, I love it. That's a great point. Yeah, I, I remember hearing those stories. I was in college at San Diego, and I remember hearing similar stories and reading about them around the country, and that was awesome. All right, you're up next. All right, so it's my turn? Yeah. I've hogged the mic enough. Speaking of length of season, in 1970, there's a boy named Evan Katz, and he's reading his sporting news baseball guide. And he comes across the Eastern League section. And in it, he sees this phrase that just stupefies him. It says, quote, Elmira and Waterbury inadvertently played 29 games with each other instead of 28. So as a boy, he's like, why? Why did they play an extra game? Okay, so that was in 1970. In 2018, the same guy, Evan Katz, now an adult, has decided... I'm sick of wondering about this. I'm going to do some homework. And he writes an article for Sabre about this. He contacted seven players. He contacts executives from the Major League Affiliates. He contacts former Eastern League employees. In fact, at one point, the Royals assistant farm director says to him, quote, I really don't think this matter is of major importance. <laughs> he, he's calling them about a situation in 1970. He's calling it 2018. But he puts together this awesome article. I don't know if you've ever experienced this, Josh, but like I found myself saying, I wish I had thought of this. This was such a weird thing, and he just does a deep dive into it. And what he found was that five of the first 12 Elmira-Waterbury matchups were postponed or suspended by rain in 1969. And there was also some confusion because they were scheduled to play on the day of the Eastern League All-Star Game, which was taking place in Philadelphia at Connie Mack Stadium. It sounds like in the minor leagues, sometimes in this era, there wasn't a formal All-Star break like we have now, and that sometimes 
you know, similar to the Futures game now where your minor league players just leave the team for a couple of days and the team continues playing. It sounds like that was going on. So all of the Eastern League employees, all of the league general managers are down at the All-Star game in Philadelphia. There was all these early season rainouts and there was just confusion on how many double hitters they had to make up. To this day, if you look at the encyclopedias, Elmira and Waterbury played an extra game by accident. Now, whenever, when you're telling me this story, I can only think of, like nowadays, there's a lot of different checks and balances in terms of, hey, what, what about this? What is, what is the magic number? You know, my math says it's this, and this website says it's this, and when is someone going to clinch and all that? But there's certainly been times when, okay, you get rained out, and then you're supposed to play a doubleheader. And then you get in the first game, but then the second game gets suspended. And so now you got to start the next game. And what if, you know, the, the RG, the radio guy, just kind of lost track of things and maybe everybody had it all figured out. And then just like one person was like, no, no, we still got to make up one yep. more and had convinced everybody else based on his own faulty math that one more game needed to be played. <laughs> so this is timely because this past season, 2019, El Paso, the club I broadcast for, and Las Vegas were very, very close. I mean, we were talking about head-to-head tiebreakers. Um, we we're talking like three different tiebreakers if a couple of games went the other way. And I'm also the media relations manager for the team. So this falls on me. And I, I literally, not a figure of speech, I literally had a nightmare that I got it wrong and the wrong team went to the playoffs. <laughs> it made me wonder, in the history of baseball, in the history of sports, has the wrong team ever gone to the playoffs and nobody noticed? <laughs> <laughs> well, there's some fans of the St. Louis Cardinals and Cincinnati Reds from 1981 that would say, yeah, yes. the wrong teams went to the playoffs for sure. You know, speaking of all-star games in minor league baseball, I don't have the, the notes right in front of me. I was not planning on telling this story, but it was actually quite common that the home team for an all-star game would play the all-stars. So let's say, for example, the, the, the KCL all-star game is in El Paso. The Chihuahuas would play all-stars from all the other teams. And it was also pretty common for a major league team to play an exhibition game against the all-stars. So maybe like the Atlanta Braves would play an exhibition game against the Southern League all-stars. And that was a thing like in the 70s and even into the early 80s, which which boggles my mind that a major league team on an off day would play an exhibition game. I'm sure the Stars didn't play that many innings, but still just the idea that the Braves would play the Southern League All-Stars is wild. It's crazy to think of that that happened fairly recently. Um, I remember reading another minor league All-Star game that back in the Southern Association, before the Southern League was called its current name, the team that was in first place at the All-Star break would host the All-Star game. So there were some times that five days before the All-Star game, they didn't know where the game was going to be yet. <laughs> <laughs> that makes selling tickets very difficult so understandably that plan was scrapped but anyway okay. to to kind of put a period on that story i'm sure you agree knowing you that i just love this guy's dedication that this question lingered in his head for 48 years and then he digs into it and writes an article about it Order must be restored in the world. Like, I love OCD people who use their inability to put something aside and must find out an answer to it. I love it. It's awesome. What was his name again? His name is Evan Katz, and the article is on Sabre's website. It's a really good article. Evan Katz, definitely salute you. That's awesome. Okay, my third story. Since a lot of us are home these days, 
a lot of people are probably watching or re-watching their favorite baseball movies. And certainly a lot of people have been watching The Natural. And I think a lot of people recall that this movie, it came out in 1984. It was based on a book that came out in 1952. Bernard Malamud wrote it. I'm going to give away some spoilers. I think enough time has passed for spoilers. But in the movie, Roy Hobbs is the name of the player, played by Robert Redford. And initially, he is this phenom pitcher. But he is shot in a hotel room. And then he disappears for 15 years. And then he comes back as a hitter. So that's the plot in the movie. In real life, there really was a woman who shot a major league player. This was not made up by Bernard Malamud. This is actually a true story. Now, again, in the movie, um, the actress Barbara Hershey played the character. She committed suicide after shooting um, Robert Redford's character, Roy Hobbs. Um, But in real life, this actually happened. It involves a woman by the name of Ruth Ann Steinhagen. She was someone who was obsessed with the Chicago Cubs first baseman. His name was Eddie Waitkus, W-A-I-T-K-U-S, Waitkus. He was often described as the handsome Cubs first baseman, Eddie Waitkus. Well, this woman had a huge crush on Waitkus. Apparently at dinner time, she would often set up a a place setting for him, uh, a dish and fork and knife. He was not invited to dinner. He didn't know this was happening, happening, but she would set up a place for him at their family dinner. She turned her bedroom into a shrine to him. She had a, a photo of him that she kept underneath her pillow. Well, after the 1948 season, Waitkiss was traded to the Philadelphia Phillies, and that's when the story takes the fateful turn. So apparently this woman decided that she wanted to kill him because he was no longer a member of the Cubs. So she got her chance the next season. The Phillies were playing the Cubs at Wrigley Field. She checked into a room at the Edgewater Beach Hotel. That's where the Phillies were staying. And she invited him to her room. I'm not exactly sure the etiquette back in 1949, but apparently she wrote a note that she left at the front desk. And the note said, we're not acquainted, but I have something of importance to speak to you about. Well, it worked. Waitkiss arrived at her hotel room. After he sat down, uh, again, the woman's name was uh, Ruth Ann Steinhagen. She walked to a closet. She said, I have a surprise for you. She got her rifle that she had hidden and she shot him in the chest. Now, amazingly, Eddie Waitkiss survived. He ended up playing the next season. He played all or parts of five more seasons after that, even though that he had been shot. Uh, The woman was judged to be insane. She spent nearly three years in a state hospital. She underwent all types of different therapy. There was um, electroconvulsive therapy to alter the chemical balance in her brain. She also underwent hydrotherapy and occupational therapy. She was eventually considered to be cured. She was released, and she was actually never tried for the shooting. I guess it was the judge or maybe it was the, um, you know, the, uh, the prosecutors just decided that they wanted to just put the matter to rest. They saw no interest in seeing her tried. She went back to Chicago's north side. She lived with her parents and her sister. She, it is not known if she had any type of job. She never spoke publicly about the shooting. Apparently there were some neighbors who said that she was scarcely seen in her neighborhood for basically 60 years. She kept as low of a profile as one could possibly keep. When she finally died, it was not that long ago. It was a few years ago. It was December 29th of 2012. And basically nobody realized who she was. 
And then in the months afterward, there was a reporter for the Chicago Tribune who was doing some research on a different story and happened upon the note about this woman, Ruth Ann Steinhagen, and started to do more digging and more details and realized that this was the woman who shot a major league baseball player in the chest. He lived, later played, and this was the inspiration for the original plot in the book, The Natural. Wow. I had heard about Wakis, well told by you. And it reminds me when I researched baseball from before World War II, I know in this case it was the late 1940s, but just how combative and violent the United States was. I mean, it was regular that if an umpire in a minor league game blew a call, that fans would rush the field and this poor person would have to run away before being attacked and in some cases was attacked. I remember, I don't have the notes prepared for this one, but there was a, a major league player for Providence in the late 19th century that a crazed fan tried to shoot his teammate and actually hit him in the shoulder. Fortunately, it was a, a grazing bullet, and the guy actually played the next day after being shot. And you know, you know what else is interesting about that story? I didn't realize that that woman was living so recently. If something like that happened today, I mean, the, the name of that shooter, of course, would be remembered in baseball circles forever. It would not go unknown even decades later. Yeah, so she lived um, a, very, a very lengthy time. She was 83 years old when she, when she passed away. And she was, um, let's see, let's see, she died in 2012. And this happened in 1949. So she was 24 years old at the time that it happened. Yeah, 24 years old at the time, roughly, um, at the time that it happened. So it's not like it was like some, you know, 13-year-old 13 13-year-old 13 girl or some like woman who was, um, who was uh, I mean, I'm sure that there was something that was wrong with her. Clearly, there was something wrong with her. But yeah, um, I find the whole thing fascinating. The fact that the player lived, played for another five years, the fact that she was not tried, the fact that she just went into obscurity. I mean, that was the whole idea, is that she would um, live the rest of her life in obscurity and, and did so. Wasn't Gary Sheffield shot during his career when he was playing in Miami? Gary Sheffield? I'm almost sure that one winter, Sheffield was in his car, survived a gunshot wound, and played the rest of his career. Let me see. Are we allowed Are to uh, Google on your show? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, here I'm just pulling up a story from the uh, Sun Sentinel. This was 1995. Sheffield shot but escaped serious injury. He was shot on the left shoulder while his car was stopped at a traffic light in Tampa. Article of uh, Halloween, 1995. Good memory. Thank you. So 95. So that's even before he wins the World Series with the Marlins. I mean, still had the bulk of his career still to go. Yeah. Uh, Dave Dombrowski says in this article, it sounds like he's lucky to be alive. The uh, wow. police officer says there doesn't seem to be any reason at all. According to Mr. Sheffield, he was just sitting at the light with his window up and someone came up and just shot him through the vehicle. Well, is it my turn now? Yeah, it's your turn. After hearing about a gunshot, I'm going to go to a positive story, Josh. A guy getting struck by lightning. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> so there's a pitcher, Ray Caldwell, who Sabre describes as a fun-loving spitballer. And in 1919, he gets released by Boston and then signed by Cleveland later in the 1919 season. His first game with Cleveland is August 24th of that year. He's pitching into the ninth inning. With Cleveland ahead 2-1, to one. he's making a great first impression on his new organization. All of a sudden, there's a flash of lightning that is so close to the stadium that fans are scurrying away. 
Some say they can feel it reverberating around the seats. And all of a sudden, when the dust settles, they look at the pitcher's mound, and Caldwell is laying stretched out next to the mound. He was hit by lightning, the pitcher in the game. And this was no joke, not that any lightning strike is, but this was severe. Caldwell tingled with electricity, according to the articles. When a teammate came up and touched him, the teammate said that he himself was crackling with electricity. He felt a shock just by touching Caldwell. Caldwell, according to the articles, stands up, looks at both arms, looks at both legs, confirms that he's in one piece, stays in the game, stands up, gets a game-ending ground out, pitches a complete game in which he was hit by lightning. Well, hey, back then you were taught that you were going to finish what you start, that no (laughs) bullpens were needed. I mean, you think about the legacy of a baseball player. How could that be topped? I mean, even if Ray Caldwell later in 1919 pitches a perfect game. I mean, to me, he's always the guy that got struck by lightning. And finished the game. Wow. I wonder how long... I mean, obviously, look, we we didn't know about... We didn't know about concussions, and we didn't have... I don't think there was x-rays or MRIs back then. I'm almost positive there was not. So how long before, like, your body is, quote, back to normal? Is your body ever back to normal? How, you know, if it was the next day and a teammate had touched him, or three hours later if a teammate had touched him, whether they would still feel the jolt of electricity that was going through his body, right? I mean, we hear a lot of stories about just the adrenaline that's, that's, that's going... And so you're able to keep playing even when you're hurt. And then once the adrenaline wears off and once your body starts to cool down, then the severity of the injury starts to sink in. So um, I don't think he would have finished the game if he would have been struck by lightning in, say, the fifth inning. But you said it was the ninth inning, right? Yeah, he just had one out to go. Wow. Well, that is a nice, cheery story. (laughs) (laughs) No pitcher would ever try to experiment with this today, but... You wonder about the science of it. Is there a chance that these shockwaves in his body maybe added a little extra zip to that fastball? <laughs> yeah, no, that's what I call doing anything to get an edge, right? <laughs> All right. Well, after death and after uh, lightning, it's time for a uh, definitely a happy, cheerful story. been reading a lot about how once baseball does restart, there's probably going to be a lot of doubleheaders. Uh, the players' union and the owners seem to both be in agreement that a much more uh, frequent doubleheaders will be played uh, this season. And so that made me think about Ernie Banks, Mr. Cub, Mr. Sunshine, and his famous quote, it's a beautiful day for baseball, so let's play two. And so I was wondering two things. Number one, when did he first say this? And number two, how good was Ernie Banks in doubleheaders? So I started to do some research. Apparently there is four different times that Ernie Banks himself said that it was the first time that he said it. (laughs) One time, it was sometime in the middle of 1969, where he had the specific date and time and everything. He also told a very similar story about that occurring in 1967. He told reporters about the first time that it happened was the All-Star Game in Kansas City in 1960, and that was very important to him because he was back in Kansas City where he had played for the Negro League, Kansas City Monarchs, And apparently he also told reporters that he said it on opening day of 1969. So there's four different instances in which Banks said this is when he said it first. Now, according to some research, not by me, the first time that the quote, let's play two appeared in print was March 14th of 1969. It was credited to the Chicago Daily News Service. A reporter by the name of Ron Sons uh, wrote a syndicated story. And apparently, according to uh, the article that Sons wrote, 
Ernie Banks was uh, kind of jogging off the field, and he just hollered out to anyone who would listen, let's play two games today. It's too nice a day for just one. And again, this story appeared March 14th of 1969. So that means we could probably eliminate the opening day of 69 story in the midsummer of 69 story. Um, but also, just because that was the first time that quote appeared in print doesn't mean that that's the first time that he said it. There, it's very possible that he said it numerous times before anybody ever uh, put it in, in quotes and in print. Remember, players are not quoted back then the way that they are now. A lot of times you just you saw the game, you wrote what you saw, you didn't necessarily go get quotes. Um, and in fact, that whole like, let's play two really didn't become a part of baseball lexicon while Ernie Banks was an active player. It wasn't until he was inducted into the Hall of Fame that the quote started to take on a life of its own. And it pretty much started with the widely respected longtime columnist of the New York Times, Dave Anderson. He wrote a story that was uh, published on January 20, 20th of 1977. And the headline was, it was always a beautiful day for Ernie. And it mentions the quote, let's play two. And then when Ernie got officially inducted into the Hall of Fame in August 9th, more and more newspapers around the country started to take on this story as well. And so the story of Ernie Banks saying, it's a beautiful day for baseball, let's play two, didn't really start to become a part of the, the, the lexicon that we know of it until he had retired and entered the Hall of Fame. It is most likely that he probably said it in that 1960 All-Star game in Kansas City. Um, apparently, a part of the story is that Ernie Banks remembered that it was about 110 degrees out. And you might recall that in 1960, that's during the short period of time in which Major League Baseball played two different All-Star games. And so perhaps Ernie Banks was saying, hey, let's play both of them today. Um, according to newspapers, the expected high in Kansas City that day was 92. And there are press reports of the game in which the oppressive heat and the blinding sun is referred to. And so perhaps that is indeed the first time that, that Ernie said it, um, the 1960 All-Star Game in Kansas City. But for sure, we don't know exactly when he said it first, but we do know that it didn't really become popular until uh, after his career was over. Good research on when it became popular. Reminds me of the Yogi Berra quote, I really didn't say everything I said. <laughs> <laughs> One of the first things I noticed upon really digging into baseball research is just the things that ended up in newspapers decades ago. And obviously Banks did say this, so it's not a factual situation, but I mean, there are so many things in history that didn't happen the way it's commonly understood that it happened. I remember about five years ago writing an article about Babe Ruth's longest home run because there's at least five different official signs in cities, states, wherever in the United States that on the sign it says this is where Babe Ruth hit his longest home run. <laughs> How could all five or six of these signs be correct? Right. Um you know, and it makes me wonder about the history of other things, like the history classes we were taught as kids in school. I'm sure some of these stories and some of these famous quotes are, I don't know, legend, myth, maybe based in a morsel of truth. Yeah. Quick side note, there's a really good book called uh, Lies Across America that goes into a pretty good explanation of why these stories kind of took on the significance that they did whether it's George Washington and the cherry tree and a whole bunch of other things. Uh, that's a podcast for another day. But yes, there are numerous examples of things that we were taught in school that just did not happen. Uh, but let me finish with some more Ernie Banks research. So the other part was that I had this idea at first where I wanted to compile the career statistics of Ernie Banks in all-star games. And 
first I tried to just see if there was a way that you could do it on baseball references play index. And I was not, not able to figure that out. So then I thought, well, maybe I can just do it by hand. And so I went to Ernie Banks' first year, which was 1953, came up at the end of the year. And I saw that he played both games of a doubleheader, was 0 for 3 with a walk in game one and 1 for 4 in game two. And so I started to make a spreadsheet. And then I went to the next year, 1954. And I realized that the Chicago Cubs played 30 doubleheaders in 1954. Not 15 games a total of 30, not 15 doubleheaders a total of 30 games, but 30 doubleheaders a total of 60 games they played that were doubleheaders in 1954. So immediately I decided that I'm going to abandon this project of knowing exactly <laughs> what Ernie Banks's career numbers were in doubleheaders because this was just going to take forever. But it was fascinating to go back and look to see how many doubleheaders were played. The next year, 1955, 22. Year after that, 28. Year after that, 30. Year after that, 20. Started to go down into the teens. By 1965, 21. By 1969, still 15 doubleheaders that were played. There was seven times that Ernie Banks hit a home run in both games of a doubleheader. There was nine times that Ernie Banks hit two home runs in game one of the doubleheader, but did not hit any home runs in the second game of the doubleheader. There was a stretch in 1957. The Cubs played 30 total doubleheaders, including three in a row, September 13th, 14th, and 15th. And Ernie Banks played all nine innings of all three doubleheaders, a total of six games. In those six games, he was seven for 19. He also walked six times. He had a three-homer game, game four out of those six. He hit three homers in the stretch in which he played, let's see, 18, uh, 54 innings in a three-day stretch. There was also a time in 1967, Banks was now 36 years old, and the Cubs played four consecutive doubleheaders, September 1st, 2nd, 3rd, and 4th. And Ernie Banks played every inning of four straight doubleheaders at age 36. It didn't do so well in that instance. He was 7 for 32, a 219 average. But uh, Ernie Banks, overall, the number of times that he truly played every inning of both games of the doubleheader is, is astounding. Again, there, there was a year in which he played 30 complete games in those 30 double headers, which is 60 total games. Uh, there was another stretch where it was um, even 1968. He's now 37 years old. He played both games of the double header 15 times out of the 18 double headers. By late in his career, he was often just played once or he maybe pinch hit in both games. Um, but he was not getting regular playing time that often anyways. But yeah, it's not. Uh, he truly liked playing in both games. Of the double header is the uh, is the point of the story. Yeah, nice job by you confirming that. And, I mean, the wear and tear on the body. I know Banks wasn't a pitcher or a catcher, but still, especially in the heat, so much standing. I know Ernie, even as an old man, had a lot of durability. I, I know this because uh, Pearl Jam, my favorite rock band, played a concert at Wrigley Field. Let's see, when Banks died within the last five years recently, right? So this is probably yeah. 2011, 2012, I think, that they played this Wrigley Field show. Banks became friends with Eddie Vedder, the lead singer of the band, and there are stories that Banks and Vedder were backstage at Wrigley Field until 2 o'clock in the morning drinking red wine, telling baseball stories. And Ernie, at this time, was in the final few years of his life. Oh, that's amazing. I love it. I love it so much. That just makes me so happy. Yeah, Eddie Vedder's a huge baseball fan, and I'm sure that he 
so yeah, I would just want to keep talking to Ernie Banks. I mean, shoot, you and I would want to keep talking to Ernie. Yeah, let's uh, yeah, give him more wine, give him coffee, give him water, give him whatever, so we can keep talking <laughs> baseball, right? Absolutely. Uh, last cu- last couple notes about doubleheaders. Um, also, the things that I learned was that again, the, the Wrigley Field did not have lights until 1988, and so when you're trying to play a doubleheader before the sun goes down, that actually led to a lot of suspended games due to darkness at Wrigley Field. So perhaps there was a lot of times in which there would be a doubleheader scheduled and because the games were long or they went extra innings or maybe just there was more cloud coverage and it wasn't light enough to say, uh, to see the ball, they had to spin the game and then finish it usually the next day. But sometimes you'd have to wait until the team comes back later in the season to finish the game. Also, it was very rare to have any doubleheaders in April back then. Certainly the weather was probably the biggest factor is my guess. You wouldn't want to schedule a game at a time when the weather might be erratic and now you have to make up both of those games later in the season you would start to see more scheduled doubleheaders in may some of the more um days that were most often used for doubleheaders july 4th july 5th was very common just before the all-star break and just after the all-star break was very common that seems to be appropriate considering that you're more willing to have to play 18 innings knowing that the next three days you're not going to play any games or your pitching staff is uh, well-rested. You just had three days off. And then also right after rosters expand, September 1st, 2nd, 3rd, when you go through old schedules, you'll see there was a lot of doubleheaders scheduled on those days as well. Makes sense. You have the reinforcements there. Yeah. So there you go. Ernie Banks said, it's a beautiful day for baseball. Let's play two. But people didn't really think of that until after his career was over. And he played two a lot. And seven times he hit two home runs, uh, one home run in each game, and nine other times he had a two-homer first game and then played the next. All right. Good stuff. Well, earlier you mentioned the concept of a major league team visiting their minor league affiliate or perhaps an all-star game during the season. July 20th, 1942, the Amsterdam Rugmakers in New York are scheduled to host the New York Yankees, their major league affiliate. The problem is eight days before the game – the grandstand burns down. People are crushed. I mean, you think about a town in upstate New York getting to see the New York Yankees in the early 40s. And, I mean, this is like a dream being destroyed. Well, a local mill banded together and in eight days rebuilt the grandstand. They hosted the game and 4,000 fans attended. And I love this story because there's times... As you and I speak here in late March 2020, that we wonder, when is opening day going to happen? I don't know why. Maybe my brain was seeking some sort of ray of sunshine. But I love this story because it looked like things were grim. It looked like things were bleak. But, you know, maybe in 2020 we'll see baseball sooner than we fear. I just love the phrase banded together. We need to use the phrase (laughs) banded together more often. Obviously, we can't literally band together right now because we need to keep our distance from one another. But the phrase banded together needs to be used more often. Amsterdamians were great at banding together. I wonder how they spread the word. It's probably just like maybe something you could put in the newspaper or maybe just even start to go like door to door. Maybe word spreads through like churches or other civic organizations. Hey, we need people to come down to the field. We, we need help. We need, we need as many people to, to donate their time or their materials as possible. We all got to band together and rebuild the grandstand because the Yankees are coming to town. Then the question is, would you want to sit at the top of a grandstand that was built by a guy you met in church? I mean, what's like the OSHA certifications (laughs) on this? Uh, Probably pretty slim. (laughs) I don't know if OSHA had certifications back then, 
But you know what? If I was one of the people who banded together and rebuilt the grandstand, I sure hope I got a free ticket out of it. Yeah, and 4,000 fans did. So, you know, I think if I was like a grandpa in Amsterdam, what a great story to relay. It's like times were tough. We banded together. And uh, this great thing happened. The New York Yankees played here. I mean, that in itself is an interesting story. If you're living in Amsterdam, the Yankees played a real game there uh, one summer. Also, there's an Amsterdam in the United States, apparently. Yes, I hope they behave themselves with their substances the way that uh, the place in Europe is known not to do. Okay, before I go down that rabbit hole, uh, here's my fifth and final one. Um, this is about how the 1918 baseball season ended early due to World War I. 1918 season began April 15th. That's about the usual time. The season ended early on September 2nd due to World War I. Every team played a doubleheader on the final day of the regular season. There was some inequities about the number of games that were played. In the American League, Boston played 126 games. Boston held a two-game lead, excuse me, a two-and-a-half-game lead over Cleveland. And so certainly the Indians had ample opportunity the final month of the season in order to uh, try and catch the Red Sox. The National League was a runaway. The Cubs played 129 games, three more than the Red Sox, and they held a 10-and-a-half game lead over the New York Giants at the time that the regular season ended early due to World War I. Uh, let's see. The way that the format was that year, games 1, 2, and 3 were in Chicago. Games 4, 5, and 6 were in Boston. I could not find in my research who would have hosted Game 7 if there was a Game 7, but as it turned out, it was unnecessary. The Red Sox won the series four games to two. You probably know this, but uh, that was the last Red Sox World Series victory for 86 years. The World Series concluded on September 11th. That is by far the earliest that a World Series has ever been completed, obviously with the exception of 1994 when there was no World Series. A couple of interesting notes about that. In the seventh inning of Game 1 of this 1918 World Series, the Star Spangled Banner was played for the first time. However, this was not a situation where they where that was played every game from then on after that the star spangled banner was played on opening day and it was played before game one of the world series but it did not become customary to play the star spangled banner before every sporting event until world war ii actually the first major leaguer who was killed in wartime was eddie grant that happened october 5th of 1918 so that's about the time that the world series would normally be played he was part of a, uh, of a mission rescue. The Lost Battalion was trapped behind German lines. And again, Eddie Grant became the first active major leaguer who was killed in wartime. Most minor leagues shut down their seasons way before that. The Pacific Coast League, which still is the name of the league that you and I work for, was much different. It wasn't really an um, affiliated league. But back then, their season ended on July 14th in 1918. Uh, the team that played... The most games was the Vernon Tigers. They played 104 games that year. And to put that in perspective, the following year, they played 181 games. Some people might know this, but most probably don't. The Pacific Coast League would routinely play games into mid to late October, which I find interesting nowadays because we're hearing talk about whether there might be uh, neutral site games played in warm weather cities or whether they might be played in domes going into November, maybe even in December. But because the Pacific Coast League was truly the Pacific Coast, the weather was, was uh, warm enough that famously the 1905 San Francisco Seals played 230 games 
in one season. And the players loved it because it meant they did not have to get an off-season job. I mean, they continued playing into October, November, and uh, fans loved it. They could keep watching baseball. The weather was good enough. So we'll see exactly what happens in 2020 with how late the season goes. But in 1919, they played 181 games, and it was pretty routine at the turn of the uh, from the 18th to the 19th century. Excuse me, from the 19th to the 20th century uh, to play games into October and November in the PCL. I remember once seeing an archive newspaper about that exact thing, and it mentioned the offseason jobs that you just did, and it said that players actually loved the 200-plus game schedule, and this honestly said this in the newspaper, because it kept them away from their offseason jobs and their wives. <laughs> it said that. <laughs> anyway, I remember as a kid reading about that 1918 World Series because you heard a lot about it. You were growing up in Boston in the 1990s. It was before they had this recent run of success uh, in this millennium. And uh, I remember loving the names, Babe Ruth, of course, but then Sad Sam Jones was on that team. Bullet Joe Bush was on that team. You know what else, as you were saying that, it gives me a hot take. I have a feeling that the 2020 World Series champion, there's going to be some debate about its legitimacy. If this ends up being a 100-game Major League schedule, same thing that happened in 1995 when it was a strike uh, delayed season. They played 144 games. Some people might say, yeah, well, it's not the same as playing 162, particularly maybe the team that loses in the playoffs. I think that the World Series champion at 2020 is the only champion. This was the story of 2020. And just like the 95 Braves or the 1918 Red Sox, that World Series counts just as much. Yeah. So the Dodgers won in 1981. I do remember talking, I'm pretty sure it was Davey Lopes. And Davey Lopes felt like even though they won the World Series in 1981, he said the whole thing just felt weird. You know, they had they had played the Yankees back-to-back -back years in 77 and 78, and they had lost. And he said, you know, because of the strike and just the way that they restarted things. I remember him just feeling like, yeah, we're the world champions, but it, it wasn't the same. And Davey Lopes has always been a guy who's been super candid. Again, to go back to the 1981 All-Star game that I watched, apparently he rode over to the ballpark with Garagiola and Kubek in the same car. And he said, yeah, I don't deserve to be here. There's players that are much better than me. I don't know why I'm in this game. I really don't deserve to be in this game. So Davey was always known as someone who was just very candid. And he always felt like that, that it just didn't, that it, that it wasn't the same to him, winning that World Series because of the, so many games were missed in the strike. Interesting honesty by him. The fact that not only felt that way, but would, would say it. Yeah. I've never thought, you know, I'm just thinking of it now. I've never looked back on the 95 Braves and thought, oh, you know, they weren't the real champions. And maybe it's because... The Braves had been to the playoffs so many years in a row, and you kept thinking that this was going to be a team that was that should have won a World Series by then. I can tell you that having grown up in the Bay Area and lived through the 1989 earthquake and how the World Series stopped for two weeks, and there was a lot of people who didn't think that the World Series should even be continued. Some thought the A's should just be declared the champions. They were up two games to nothing before Game 3 was interrupted by the earthquake. There was some thought that it should be played in another city uh, almost right away, almost immediately. Um, as someone who was from the Bay Area, when and now granted, I'm, I'm an Ace fan, so take this with a grain of salt. I felt like when the World Series returned, that meant that we were back to normal. And I knew that there were still people that were in hospitals and they were still digging through the rubble on the Cypress Freeway in Oakland. But when the World Series restarted, it felt like, OK, we were back to normal and it was important that the World Series was finished. And the A's won the next two. And so it ended up being a sweep. But I know that in, in, the, in the minds of a lot of 
A's fans, they look back on those great teams and they said, yeah, they went to the World Series three three years in a row, but they only won one and, and all that anybody ever remembers is the earthquake. So it might be that no matter what happens in 2020, we're just going to rem- – we're just going to remember this uh, this coronavirus more than we're going to wait, remember the champion. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, obviously, let's hope we're at ball games sooner than later, and that it's a celebrated World Series. But I suspect you're right. I mean, just uh, the story that's taking over the sports world. We all have our versions of this story, but just a couple of weeks ago, I remember when the kind of the epicenter of the United States coronavirus was up in the Seattle area. I remember looking at the El Paso schedule and thinking, boy, and Late April, I'm scheduled to be in Tacoma. I wonder if we'll have those games with no fans. Like, the thought of three road games with no fans was mind-blowing to me. Yeah. And, I mean, now we're talking about TBA for opening day, something much more severe. So, it's a great question. How will we feel about the 2020 baseball season when so many more important things are taking place? You know, I I think all of us are trying to remain as optimistic as possible that we're going to play, and we're going to play when it's appropriate, and we're going to be able to play as many games. I think that if this playoff does go into November, late November, maybe even early December, whatever it is that they decide. I think in a lot of ways, it's going to be one of the most memorable just because of how I think we all just have like an internal body clock of when you play baseball and baseball gets played in this month and it's around these holidays. It's around Memorial Day and it's around the 4th of July. And you don't think of baseball around Thanksgiving or, you know, or around when it's snowing outside, except for a few um, odd instances. So I think in a lot of ways, it's going to be very memorable. But whether or not the ultimate, the, the, the champion is considered the same lines of, of other champions, I guess that's all in the eye of the beholder. Yeah, we will see. All right, you got one so, more for us? Yeah, my closing one is to tell you about Lou Proctor, who was a phantom ball player. If you looked at a Major League Baseball encyclopedia in 1990, you saw Lou Proctor, Major League debut May 13, 1912, for the St. Louis Browns at Boston, one at bat as a pinch hitter. Well, in the early 1990s, Sabre's Biographical Research Committee, the people that do the type of research that we've been referencing in this podcast today, they start to say, who is this guy? I don't see him on any minor league rosters. He never played in the major leagues again. I can find no record of a ball player in this time named Lou Proctor. So they start digging. And as John Thorne, Major League Baseball's official historian, says, it was determined that Proctor was, quote, a prankish Western Union telegrapher. Proctor was running the telegraph, entering the play-by-play data, a 1912 version of the game day gamecast we see now, and he inserts himself as a pinch hitter, as a joke. The next day, his name appears in newspapers across the country, and people, for the most part, don't pay much attention to it because it's an ordinary-sounding name. And, um, you know, if you're sitting there in New York City, it's conceivable that some guy named Proctor would pinch hit for the bad St. Louis Browns one random day in Boston. But for 80 years, as Thorne puts it, this guy was immortalized in baseball encyclopedias as a major leaguer, but he wasn't. Okay, so this is admittedly a little bit embarrassing, but at that moment right there is when the recording stopped when Tim and I were recording this podcast. Fortunately, it stopped well past the one-hour mark, so we're still able to get just about the entire podcast. You got the gist of the story about the um, 
about the guy who inserted himself into a box score and no one knew about it for years and years and years. Uh, Tim and I had a little bit of back and forth, uh, witty discussion about this jokester, and I thanked him for coming on my podcast for the third time. And so once again, I want to formally thank Tim Haggerty for coming on. My apologies that the podcast got cut off. I don't know what happened with Skype at that point. You probably heard there was a few times when maybe one of our internet connections started to get a little bit slow and our voices started to sound a little bit weird. That's why I prefer doing these podcasts in person rather than over the over the internet but nonetheless once again thanks to tim haggerty for joining me as we give you some strange but true stories from baseball's very colorful past i'm josh asushan and this is life around the seams 